We are continuing our series on the teachings and parables of Jesus. Yay. Paying particular attention to how the entire gospel message, the good news, is one of physical healing and inner healing. And I we miss that so often. We I think we think these healings and miracles are just like a, a sideshow or something that Jesus did. But no, that is central to the message of the good news. So last week we saw that um, uh, Jesus raised his first person from the dead, which of course emptied up the stakes considerably um, between him and the religious establishment. Word of this miracle, it spreads like wildfire, and it even reaches his cousin, John the Baptist, who is wasting away in Herod's prison. John sends a message to Jesus asking, are you really the Messiah or is there somebody else coming after you? Which is a valid question, right? The Hebrew Bible predicts that Elijah will come to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. It also predicts that a prophet like Moses will be raised up from among the Israelites and God will put his words directly in this prophet's mouth and he will speak God's words in God's name. After all the the Elijah and Moses part, the great and terrible day of the Lord will come when the Messiah comes and all wrongs are set right and Israel is rescued from her oppressors. So this is like, the end end time prophecies in a nutshell from from the Hebrew Bible. And the Jews have been waiting for this for centuries by Jesus' time. So John's question to Jesus is a valid one. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is the day of the Lord at hand? Now notice that the belief that the Messiah's coming and the day of the Lord coincide closely in time. This is one of the biggest reasons Jews do not believe Jesus was the Messiah, because he did not bring the rescue and peace on earth that they expected. Another thing to remember here is that this story of the dialogue between John the Baptist and Jesus is told by Matthew and Luke. It is not told by John the disciple who wrote the Gospel of John. John the Disciple's gospel has John the Baptist recognizing Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Messiah on sight. But here in Matthew and Luke's versions, John the Baptist doesn't know for sure whether Jesus is the Messiah. It's important to remember that John the Disciple sort of rewrites the Jesus story and gives it a theological explanation. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all trying to just follow the events more or less as they happened. They're what we modern folks might call a more, quote, historical account. That said, all four Gospels, even though they're different, can be true all at the same time. The gift of truth, with a capital T, is not affected by its wrapping paper of facts and timelines or even the theological overlays. So don't stress about the fact that John says that John the Baptist knew Jesus was the Messiah, and Matthew and 
um, Luke say that he didn't. So we're just listening for the gift of truth beneath the stories. And in fact, having these conflicting stories helps us recognize what part is wrapping paper. So when Jesus gets word of John the Baptist's questions, he says to John's disciples, go back and tell John the Baptist everything you've seen and heard. And Jesus quotes from the ancient prophecies that told what the day of the Lord would accomplish. So this is Jesus' answer to whether or not he's the Messiah. And to understand his answer, we need to look at like an example of one of many prophecies that John the Baptist and his disciples would know well. So the the example I picked is from Isaiah 29. I could have picked several. The Hebrew Bible refers to the day of the Lord and the coming of the Messiah with that special phrase, in that day. That is a text marker that alerts us whenever the end time, quote, day of the Lord um, and the coming of the Messiah is in view in the prophecy. So this particular prophecy says, in that day, the deaf will hear the words of the book, the blind will see through the darkness, the humble and those in need will leap for joy in the Lord. The cruel ones will vanish. And those who deprive the innocent of justice will disappear. All who seek evil will be cut down. And among my people, all who erred or grumbled will finally understand. So there's lots of prophecies like this. So when John the Baptist asks if Jesus is the Messiah, it is no accident that Jesus replies with these following words. Jesus says, go back and tell John what you yourselves have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are made clean, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor are given good news. (laughs) Jesus pretty much covers it all. He is saying he is the Messiah prophesied by the Hebrew Bible, by the prophets. So this is also exactly what Jesus announced when he read a similar prophecy from Isaiah 61.1 when he began his ministry. And he told the people in the synagogue that these things were happening now in their sight. The coming of the Messiah is like huge good news. And Jesus is fulfilling all these old prophecies. He is speaking the very words of God to the people. And God is splashing huge billboards everywhere to verify that Jesus is truly from God. Well, John's disciples go running back um, to the prison to tell John what Jesus said. And as they leave, Jesus turns to the crowd and reminds them, You know, you went out to the desert to see John, to see a prophet. John is the one the prophet Malachi wrote about when he said the Lord would send a messenger ahead to prepare the way. All the prophets and the law prophesied up until John, but he is greater than anyone up to now. He is the Elijah who was prophesied to come. Can you imagine the rustling and murmurs in the crowd when Jesus says this? John the Baptist, the very one sitting in prison, is the Elijah prophesied to come? So that means Jesus must be the prophet like Moses. He's been raised up from among the Israelites. 
He's speaking to the people, the words God gives him to speak. They haven't had a prophet like this in forever. God's billboards are hard to miss. And with all the miracles and healings and raising people from the dead that fulfill the old prophecies about the Messiah, everyone now understands that Jesus is the Messiah and the day of the Lord is at hand. There should be like fireworks, widespread rejoicing throughout all of Israel. Now is the time for the good news to enter every heart. Now is the time for the wolf to dwell peacefully with the lamb. Now is the time for peace on earth and goodwill towards men. But of course, there is not. People are hardening their hearts rather than opening them. Jesus turns to the scribes who accused him last week of using the power of evil to do his miracles and says, you are like that children's song. We played the pipe and you did not dance. We sang the dirge and you did not weep. It doesn't matter what we say or how we say it. You refuse to understand. John the Baptist came in austerity, not eating bread or drinking wine. And you said he had a drink, has a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking and you say, behold, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend with tax collectors and sinners. So this can happen to us too. There can be relationships in which we are never good enough. There can be times when no matter what we say, we never seem to say the right things or make the right argument to convince people who are stubbornly determined to see us as wicked. So remember Jesus's words when you're judged. It doesn't matter what you say or how you say it if they don't want to hear. You can never be good enough for someone who is judging you. Jesus was in the exact same boat as you, and he simply walked away. He knew he was listening to God and doing what he understood the father to be doing in the world in that moment. So he went to the people who were ready to hear and he made them his family. Nevertheless, Jesus continues to dialogue with these folks, you know, who are opposing him and opposing God whenever the opportunity presents itself. He didn't cut them off or have them strong armed out of the crowds. In fact, the very next thing he does is accept a dinner invitation from a Pharisee, a Pharisee named Simon. As a side note, this story is only in Luke 7. There's a similar story that happens much later, just before Jesus is crucified. So even though that other story is similar, it is a completely different event or at least it's told for a different purpose. It, you know, if it's the same event, it's been reworked and repurposed. So we'll cover that later one when we get there. We're going to treat it as a separate event. So here's a picture of dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. The custom in this day is that tables are low to the floor and the men recline around the table on pillows, having conversation, being served by the women. And you can, you can see in the picture how they're all sort of lying on mats here. Normally, when you enter someone's house, you take your sandals off and either a servant comes and washes your feet, or if there's no servants, there would be a basin and towels by the door for you to do it yourself. But this time, no servant comes to wash Jesus' feet when he gets there. 
a woman known to be a sinner, whatever that might mean, hears that Jesus is in Simon's house in her town, and she comes with a jar of expensive perfume. The men like completely ignore her as they would typically ignore any woman in this context. She, however, stands at Jesus' feet and just weeps quietly. Her tears fall on Jesus' feet. She wipes them away with her hair. And then she kisses his feet and pours the expensive perfume over them. There is such heartbreaking tenderness in this story. As the smell of the perfume fills the room, the woman can no longer be ignored. Simon the Pharisee thinks to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he'd know that the woman touching him is a sinner. Well, Jesus knows who this woman is, and he knows what Simon is thinking. And Jesus says, a story to tell you, Simon. And Simon says, speak, Rabbi. Jesus says, once upon a time, there was a money lender, and one person owed him an amount worth 500 days wages, more than a year's wages. Another person owed him an amount worth about 50 days wages. Now, neither of these men could pay the money lender back, so he forgave the debts of both of them. I ask you, Simon, which man loved the money lender more? Simon says, well, I guess it would be the one who was forgiven the bigger debt. And Jesus says, correct. And he says, you see this woman? When I entered your house, there was no basin for me to wash my feet. But this woman has wet my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You did not greet me with a kiss. But she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfume on my feet. So I say to you, her great love shows that her many sins have been forgiven. However little someone has been forgiven, that's how little he will love. And Jesus turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. The guests start murmuring among themselves saying, who does he think he is? But Jesus just ignores them and says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That word for saved is the common one. It's translated as saved most of the time, but not all the time. I want you to comprehend the fullness of this word. It means to be preserved healed, made safe from peril, restored, and made whole. Jesus is not talking about this woman being saved from hell. Hell isn't mentioned here, nor does it seem to be in view. Only her sins are in view, her well-known sins that are causing her separation from her community right here in this little town. The sins that have caused her so much grief that she weeps over Jesus' feet, knowing she's already been forgiven all of it. You see, according to Jesus' story, if you go back and read it carefully, the woman already knew 
how much she'd been forgiven. That's why she was weeping. Those were tears of gratitude. She was the debtor who had been forgiven a large debt and is weeping in gratitude. And Jesus speaks directly to her current situation, to her heart. He says, your trust, your belief in God's mercy and favor, your faith has healed and restored you and made you whole. Jesus says, your faith, not Jesus' special touch, not a miracle. Jesus has not been crucified yet. There is no cross yet. It is simply believing that God loves and approves of her and welcomes her, sinful outcast her. That faith is what has healed her. This is what salvation means, at least so far in the Gospels. When Jesus tells the story of the men who had been forgiven by the moneylender. He says that those who have been forgiven much will love more than those who have been forgiven only a little. So based on this, who would you think will be the most likely to give up their everyday lives and become disciples? It would be the ones who have been the worst off, right? The tax collectors, the outcasts, the lepers, and those who have been the most ill. It would be the oppressed, which would include the women. And as Luke tells this story, it apparently reminds him that Jesus actually does have several important women disciples in addition to the 12 men. And he adds that comment to this story. He says, as Jesus travels from town to town, proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom being here, Now, the inner circle who travel with him are the 12 disciples he's already called to his inner circle, but also Mary called Magdalene, who has been healed of seven demons, which means in their common culture, that means she'd been very, very ill. Joanna, the wife of Herod's household steward, if you can believe that, and a woman named Susanna and many other women of means, women who were were rich in their own right, who helped support Jesus' ministry out of their own funds. Now, this is astounding. And this passage is rarely mentioned. There is nothing in here about Mary Magdalene being a prostitute, not a word. That myth seems, at least to me, to be made up to minimize her role and her power in Jesus' inner circle. The myth that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute has no basis in the Bible. There is, however, a famous gospel called the Gospel of Mary. We only have chunks of it, no complete manuscripts, the Mary being referred to as Mary Magdalene. And this gospel was considered important by a group of early Christians called the Gnostics. Now, they were um, Christians who believed they possessed secret knowledge. Um, The the word gnosis is uh, Greek for knowledge. So various strains of Gnosticism developed really elaborate like explanations for good and evil and they came up with all kind of beings in addition to God and Satan to account for why bad things happen to good people and this brought them into direct conflict 
with the early church fathers. So or when, when we say early church fathers, we're talking second to third centuries, like a couple hundred years after Christ, several, a few hundred years after Christ. So there was a lot of tussling back and forth. The Gnostics are eventually branded as heretics. So the gospel of Mary that they loved did not make it into the Bible as canon. And truly, you know, if you go and read it, the bits of theology in it that have survived are pretty weird. I will give them that. So when I read this um, extra biblical uh, gospel, I pay no attention to the theology. But what I do think is significant is the role Mary Magdalene seems to play among the 12 disciples. We do have that part of the gospel, and it's fascinating, and we're going to look at it in our breakout groups. But for now, let's continue exploring Jesus' teachings. Up to now, the only real teaching recorded has been the Sermon on the Mount and its subset, the Sermon on the Plain. But those teachings were directed specifically to the disciples. Jesus spoke plainly to them, using exaggerated images to help them remember his main points. But now Jesus is walking from town to town, healing people and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And Jesus uses parables almost exclusively as he teaches the crowds. He rarely says anything directly or plainly to the people. The people um, recognize themselves in the parables and they understand the underlying truth Jesus is speaking to them. It's like um, how we see movies nowadays. We know a movie is not real, but any good movie, even if it's like completely fiction, will strike a chord of truth within us. And when we remember the images from the movie, we remember what we felt or learned from it. A parable is like that. So Jesus is talking to poor people, day laborers, farm workers, housewives, widows, people who are regularly stepped on by the Roman soldiers and the rich people. The people Jesus is talking to, by and large, cannot read or write. They've been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees that they must follow strict rules in order to please a distant God. They have no way to know otherwise. And they only, these people only know work and hardship. And Jesus speaks to them using situations they recognize from their daily lives. But the disciples are mystified. They ask Jesus, why don't you teach the people plainly? Why do, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus answers them the same way we do when we post a meme that people embedded in the common culture will get and people who aren't as aware won't get. We post the hashtag pound I-Y-K-Y-K, which means if you know, you know. <laughs> Jesus tells the disciples, you all know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others I speak in parables. Some people get it and some people don't. And that fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. It's just another way of saying that Jesus is speaking to the people whose hearts are already open to these truths. They recognize the truths in the story. The people whose hearts are closed aren't going to get it because they don't want to get it. 
So then Jesus quotes a passage from the time when uh, God called the prophet Isaiah to ministry. It's back in Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah is scared. He is too sinful to be called to speak God's words to the people. In his vision, one of the seraphim at the throne of God takes some tongs and plucks a hot live coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's mouth with it. And the seraph says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is blotted out. This is like 700 years before Jesus and God is already blotting out sin. And God says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah answers, here I am, send me. And there's the bit that Jesus quotes to his disciples and says is being fulfilled when he teaches in parables. The Lord says to Isaiah, go tell this people, go ahead, hear, but do not comprehend. See, but do not perceive. Make their heart calloused, Isaiah. Otherwise, they might use their eyes to see and their ears to hear and their hearts to understand. For if they did, they would turn to me and be healed. This sounds so much like what the Lord said about the Pharaoh in Egypt, right? We saw back then that simply the presence of the Lord's prophet Moses speaking the Lord's truth was enough to infuriate Pharaoh. Just The Lord's very presence hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I'm afraid the same thing happened again in Israel when Isaiah prophesied. And the same thing is happening all over again with Jesus. The simple fact of Jesus' presence generates such a reaction in the people who do not want the status quo to be overturned. This prophecy is being fulfilled again. So you see, Jesus is speaking the words of God and the words shine light in the dark places of people's hearts. And some people harden their hearts against the light while others open themselves and turn to God and allow themselves to be healed. God's words have not changed and people haven't changed. God gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. The healing is there if we will only open ourselves to it and turn our hearts towards God and towards each other. The parables are plain for those who want to hear God's words. Well, the crowds following Jesus are so bad that he gets in a boat and sits out a little way from shore to teach them. And he tells them this next story, which is found with some slight variations in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is part of Jesus' answer to the disciples about why he teaches in parables. It's a parable of how the teaching of Jesus lands in our hearts. So this is like a continuation of this answer. He says, once upon a time, there was a farmer who went out to sow his seed. And as he scattered his seed, some fell on the path itself and the birds quickly gobbled it up. Some of the seed fell among the rocks where there was not much moisture and the plants tried to come up, but they quickly withered from lack of nourishment. Some of the seed fell into thorns that choked it so it could not grow. But some of the seed fell on very good soil indeed. And the plants grew and grew and yielded a hundred times over. 
And Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear. If you know, you know. Well, the disciples have no clue. And <laughs> as soon as they can get Jesus in private, they ask, what the heck did that parable of the farmer and the seed mean? You can almost see Jesus smack his head. So patiently, Jesus explains, the seeds are God's words. Some people hear the word, but the evil one snatches it away from them so they cannot take it in and be saved, be made whole. Sometimes the words fall on rocky soil. People hear and understand the word, but they receive no nourishment. So it just withers away from lack of roots. They cannot withstand any adversity. As for the thorns, those are the words that fall into hearts of people choked by the cares of this world, by their money, and their pursuit of pleasure. God's word cannot mature in this environment. But some of the words fall on hearts ready and willing to receive them. These hearts hear the words, hold them close, and by persevering, they produce a bountiful crop. What a beautiful parable and how true it is. What kind of soil is our own heart? This parable seems to imply that our environment has some part to play. And we have some part to play in how open we are to God's words. Food for thought. But for now, let's take a little closer look at Mary Magdalene. I want to read you the passages from the Gospel of Mary that we'll be discussing. This is not part of the Bible, so we're not looking at any theology. What we're looking at are the dynamics between the male disciples and Mary Magdalene. Jesus saying to her, to them, let's see, um, go then and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Do not lay down any rules beyond what I appointed you. And do not give a law like the lawgiver, lest you be constrained by it. And when he said this, he left, but they, the disciples, were grieved and they wept greatly saying, how shall we go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel of the kingdom to the, uh, of the son of man? If they didn't spare him, how will they spare us? And Mary stands up, greets them all and says to her brethren, do not weep and do not grieve, nor be irresolute for his grace will be entirely with you and will protect you. But rather, let us praise his greatness, for he has prepared us and made us into men. Now, when Mary said this, she turned their hearts to the good, and they began to discuss the words of the Savior. Peter said to Mary, sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than the rest of woman. Tell us the words of the Savior, which you remember, but we do not nor have we heard them. So Mary, you know, tells them the words she remembers Jesus talked about in the vision. Most of that's missing in the manuscript. So when Mary had finished, you know, telling them all the words, she fell silent. But Andrew answered and said to, to the brethren, well, say what you wish to say about what she said. I at least do not believe that the Savior said this, for certainly these teachings are strange ideas. And Peter answered and spoke concerning these same things. He questioned them about the Savior. Did, did he really speak privately with a woman and not openly to us? Are we to turn about and 
all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? And then Mary starts crying and she says to Peter, my brother, Peter, what do you think? Do you think that I thought this up myself in my heart or that I'm lying about the Savior? And Levi, another disciple, answers and says to Peter, Peter, you have always been hot-tempered. Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries. But if the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That's why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and put on the perfect man and separate as he commanded us and preach the gospel, not laying down any other rule or any other law beyond what the Savior said. And when they heard Levi, they began to go forth to proclaim and preach. So that's very interesting um, dialogue between Mary and the disciples. So in your breakout groups, brainstorm about this passage and talk about what strikes you in it. Uh, so I hope this was interesting. Um, and and I did a really terrible job of ex- of setting it up for you because this gospel is just all we have are these little fragments. Um, so it it starts with the disciples of Mary with Jesus. Jesus gives them the great commission and then Jesus disappears. He leaves. The disciples are upset. They ask Mary, um, they said, you know, you, how can we, they, they say, we can't do it. Jesus has given us an impossible task. They ask Mary to tell them everything she remembers about all the different things Jesus told her that he might not have told them um, while he was, on earth. And then there's this like break in the manuscript. And then it picks up again with Mary talking to the disciples. And then she begins telling them about this vision she had. And then we come to that um, last part where the disciples argue about whether they should believe Mary or not. What did y'all think of that? Did do we, okay. Where it says, where um, Andrew says, certainly these teachings are strange ideas. <clears throat> Is there any, record of that surviving as to what she said jesus said uh yeah let me let me go back up um the kinds of things that are put in jesus mouth before he leaves um and it's very archaic language uh the nature of matter is resolved into the roots of its own nature alone he who has ears let him hear um matter gave birth to passion that has no equal, which proceeded from something contrary to nature. Then there arises a disturbance in its whole body. It's that kind of stuff. It's like stuff that makes sense. It's very, it's very different. It sounds like it's very different from what's in the the gospels. Exactly. Which was why I didn't include it. And we're not covering it. All that theology that is embedded in this gospel in the, in the dialogue that we do have in this gospel is is you know clearly off in, out in left field somewhere. So all I wanted to focus on was not whether or not the theology in the gospel, which probably came from the Gnostic writer who wrote it, who you know kind of like John put his theology in the Gospel of John. Whoever wrote the, this Gnostic Gospel of Mary would have put their own theology into the words yeah. of the characters. 
Um, and, but what I was did think was really interesting was the part that they probably didn't make up, which was the interaction between Mary and the disciples, just how they interacted with each other. This gospel writer had a sense of how Mary fit into the 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 system of disciples. But that didn't go through all the different trans people doing different translations like the what we have in our hands today either, right? It's I do not know the textual history of this particular these fragments. But I don't think we have a lot of fragments of this gospel. What did y'all see in here? Um, we had a wonderful conversation, and I absolutely tread all over my commitment that I opened. <laughs> I, this was so excites me, and I just, Dale, I wish we had more time. Um, and Martha, may I offer what what you left us with? I just. And we had 36 seconds left, and I was like, I wish we could talk more about it. Um, Martha, why don't you say it about the chronology issue and the cross? I thought sure. that was cool. Sure. So I, I, I made a sharp left turn at the end, and that is that um, I thought it was just fascinating to reflect on that Jesus forgave Mary Magdalene's sins and numerous other peoples before and without benefit of the cross. And so much of Christianity has to put that our sins are forgiven because of the cross. And I'll just say it for me, I don't believe that for an instant. (laughs) And I just wish I and we, the large we could reflect on, Jesus was all about healing, including healing from sinfulness, while he lived, he did not have to die for our sins to be forgiven. That's a firm belief of mine. For us to be forgiven. Yes. All of us. And, and certainly, you know, we're teasing that out of this record in the scripture itself. I mean, you're going to get a lot of pushback from whole chunks of Christianity on that statement, yeah. you know. Yeah, I know it. And Martha, maybe someday we can all have a separate class because that opens up so many other things that have nothing to do with what we're talking about now. That's okay. We can talk about all of it. Well, I have to go back and figure out why I was told X and X. So not trying to take away. That is how I would make everything in my head believe that I don't believe that either. But everything I grew up with, everything was it's the blood. Everything was blood and there had to be a blood sacrifice and there had to be, you know, and you understand it, but then they will never address any question outside of that realm. So I've gone a lot of years where it was just an unresolved thing. It just out there that you just had to let go of somehow. But when it comes up, it's like, oh, other people kind of came up with that same, I wonder how they resolve that. You know, how do you then resolve these other things? So that would be a good conversation for I'm concerned, but again, not in this premise. I don't know how I'll text you. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for opening up those conversations as well. 
Because I am fascinated with the Catholic Bible and other, but anyhow, like I said, that goes down this big, long path of questions that this has been wonderful to have a chance to have open up. Yeah, I think if you get anything out of the Bible study as a general rule, one of the things I, one of the things I get out of it is that the boundaries around Christianity are not as thick and black and defined as what we may have been led to believe all our lives that that there there is a lot more seamless fa- uh, fabric around these scriptures and the experiences of the people who wrote them and what their people are bringing to the table and so you know I do we we are focusing on the Bible. We're focusing on the scripture. That is our core text here. But I'm also trying to show you some, where some of the edges are. Well, I, I would have a suggestion, not for today, but maybe for a future, future class. Uh, and that is, in your introduction, you said that that the uh, Jesus's miracles were central to him and, and his uh, ministry. And I have heard or read in, at times in the past that it is not necessarily required or necessary to believe in the factual uh, miracles to, to nonetheless believe that Jesus was the son of God. Um, and I, that would just, that, that's always fascinated me. I have, I don't really have a, an opinion about it, but it, it certainly is an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. What do you? My opinion ends up a lot of that is keeping the flock in the pen, kind of thing. But over years, not something new, but over centuries, a lot of stuff has been done trying to, you know, not let everybody stray off into all these other things. So it's just like, well, we'll keep you here, and you don't really have to believe this. Or on the other hand, you do have to believe. So it's just, I think that's where all the different denominations and all those things have split out into stuff over things like that. Yeah, we definitely want to take the power dynamics out of our relationship with God. (laughs) You know, we want to pull these human power dynamics out of the way, which is what Jesus was doing, you know, Um, and that's what got him into so much trouble. Pardon? That's something that um, is addressed actually at the end of the the passage that um, you gave us where Levi answers and, and puts Peter back in his place after Mary tries. Um, and she says, uh, rather let us be ashamed and put on the perfect man and separate as he commanded us and preach the gospel, not laying down any other rule or law beyond what the savior said and um boy what have we done what have we done yeah and i think what we've done is diminish god i think that god is so what we're hearing in these gospel stories is that god is so much bigger and so much more loving than we had ever thought that that forgiveness was available to everyone at any time that god wants nothing more 
than to be in relationship with us. And we'll make that happen. If we even like give one tiny little inkling of wanting to do it too. It's kind we're of in a, in a parish in Sacramento. So we followed the charism of St. Francis and, um, and Claire. And um, Franciscans are very um, egalitarian and they have Claire and Francis. They were cohorts at that time. And there's a story that they tell that when I get into these intellectual twists in my own mind, and, and I love the story that he had a young brother, a young priest that he was training, and they went to a town in Italy and they were walking and they were going out to preach the gospel. And so this young friar's all excited that he's with the master and he's going out with Francis, blah, blah, blah. So they go through the whole town and they take days and they feed people and they take care of someone's feet that needs to be bound. I mean, the story just goes on and on. You can take it forever. But they get to the end of the town and the young man turns to Francis, St. Francis, and says, well, wait a minute, you know, I thought we were out here to preach the gospel. And Francis turns to the young man and said, that's exactly what we've done the whole time we have been in this town. Preach the gospel always and sometimes use words, you know. And so when I get all twisted up on what's real and what's not real and what's, you know, it really does become pretty simple that as long as we are feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty, you know, it, it's kind of simplistic, but I think it's it's love. It's at the heart to love everybody as we love ourselves. As long as I'm doing that for someone else, I'm I think I'm okay with Jesus, don't you? Um yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I also wanted to highlight in this by giving you this, I wanted to just give you a really sharp contrast between how we are usually taught about Mary Magdalene, that she was prostitute yeah. and a sinner, and you know, and then here in the gospel of Mary Magdalene, we see a woman who is perceived as a leader among the disciples. Yes. That's the sect in the Catholic Church that that thinks she was the disciple that Christ loved. You know, Catholic Church is a big tent, and there are a group of people that believe when you hear the term the gospel, uh, excuse me, the disciple that Christ loved, we attribute it to John. But there are people that think that it was Mary. It was the Magdalene, you know, the one that he loved. And um, it's it's just fascinating. You know, at the parish we were in, on Good Friday, we owned the altar, the women in the parish, which was unusual in a Catholic church. But in January, we would gather as a group of women every Sunday for three hours from January until Good Friday, whenever that was set. And we would study the gospel and we would learn about Joanna and Susanna. All those women funded Jesus's public life. They 
were the financiers for him to do his teaching. And we learned about those women. And for women in the Catholic Church that are not necessarily on the altar, it was very empowering to, to realize our place in the Jesus story, you know, in the gospel. And so we would travel together and we, at the end, we would pick a character that we resonated with. And so then we did a play or music or poetry or on Good Friday and everybody came and it was the women on the altar. And in the Catholic Church, that was meaningful. And it just, and we wrestled with all those issues of the history we heard as young Catholic girls that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. What the? I mean, you think guys are running around? I mean, it's human nature, you know? But we had to make her a prostitute. And I am so glad I've lived long enough to have her come into scholarship and theology and research that says, no, that's not who she was, you know? She was a companion and confident. In my language, she was the feminine face of Jesus. Hmm. That's an interesting way to see her. And and uh, and I and I completely agree with the scholarship that has been very clear that she was there is no support for her being a prostitute um, mm. anywhere. But I also want to point out that if she was a prostitute, if she was a sex worker, she still could have been a leader. You know? Yes. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Right. God oh. is big enough for all of us. And we are not defined by our probably... past and we are not defined by our jobs unless we want us to be, mm-hmm. unless we do that. I'm sorry, Brad. It was probably just to perpetuate the patriarchy that they branded her a prostitute. It, yeah. That's what it feels like, right? Yeah. That's what it feels like. So these are, this is just, I I just think this is fun kind of discussion to have to, you know, put on a different pair of glasses to see our Holy scripture through and um, have these conversations. And, uh, and we can, we have, you know, another five or 10 minutes if if you want to, but um, uh, I know that you all, all got to talk to each other already. (laughs) So I don't want to. Brian and Woody part of the conversation. I I'm I'm such a believer that the teaching of Jesus were inclusive, and I have my women's groups where I can talk these issues with women. But I will never be at a place where I cannot hear the male voice as well. Jesus heard male and female. You know I. so thank you. And um, yeah, did you guys, what did you guys have a, a take? I, you know, Brian, you just mentioned what you were thinking. Um, Woody, either of you? What we were thinking about. About just the whole Mary Magdalene thing, you know, and her, her role in as a disciple. Yeah, well, I have, no, I have thought for a long time that she was central and, and was effectively a disciple. And I, I agree with uh, everything that you all have said and that Mary said that, that, and that Brian said that, uh, that this myth of her being a prostitute was almost certainly perpetuated in the, I don't know, 
couple or 300 years after Jesus lived in order to perpetuate the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, you know, and, and as you just said, even if she was a prostitute. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Gail. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Woody. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm done. Well, I was going to ask, I had one thing for some reason I wanted to just say it had nothing to do with Mary, but it was something that you said in the beginning of the, the class that just struck me. And it was obvious to everybody else, but you compared, I think, was it in Isaiah? I have to go back and look. You gave that where they were saying who the Messiah was or how they would know him and uh -huh. all the things that Jesus turned around and said later and how he matched up with that. Mm -hmm. And then that's just weird. I'm going to cry. <laughs> it's like, I never could, you know, you'd always hear all these things about, well, Jesus never said he was, he, you know, and there's all the conversations about, well, he really wasn't that. And he never said he was, and he never did that. And that was just so clear that he was saying that by that one verse. I had a lot to think about on that, but it just really, I wanted to be sure and mention it because that was a pretty profound thing to, to hear for me. Oh. Thank you. Yeah. And those are the those are the attributes by which we know God's voice. Is there healing? Are we seeing better? Are we are we hearing better? Are we understanding more? Are is it life-giving? These are the earmarks of God. These are the earmarks of the Messiah. This is what was prophesied. And Jesus, yeah. Fruits. 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 We're part of those. We are part of that. Later, we're going to come to a, a part where, where Paul talks about how Jesus was just the first of many. You know? We, that we are, he was the first of many brothers and sisters. That we we take part in this, and Jesus was so inclusive about that. You know, we're gonna um, in another week or two, we'll have a a class where he actually sends these poor bumbling twelve disciples out into the world by themselves. <laughs> to see, we see what happens. So, Donna, thank you so much for sharing that. And I yeah. think we'll stop there, and I will see you next week. <laughs>